0: Good morning. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. for Sunday school, uh, and we're of course starting a new uh, series or topic in in, in my Sunday school, and we really kind of kicked it off last week. For those of you who were here last week, we gave kind of a general overview on the on the biblical topic of marriage. And, of course, we had everybody in there for that, and then now we're getting into, uh, uh, well, I guess you could say we're getting further into this topic of marriage, and that's what we'll be uh, dealing with for a number of weeks. Uh, I haven't decided exactly for sure. It's kind of open-ended. I'm not committed to saying this is going to be nine weeks or this is going to be 13 weeks. We're just going to go until we uh, get done. And um, in a moment, what I'll do is I'll, or at some point this morning, I'll, I'll Kind of give you a list of some of the major topics we're going to try to hit. Some of these will deal like on sort of a you know one topic per week basis. Some of them, though, uh, might require getting into more depth and might take us more than one week to really uh, adequately address. I won't say uh, I won't say fully because there's no fully really is there. Uh, but we're going to do our best. And uh, again, so some topics we'll cover, uh, you know, one week per topic. Others we may have to expand a little bit. But let's begin uh, with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we rejoice in you. We thank you for your goodness to us uh, and your blessings which overflow to us each and every day. We're so grateful for this beautiful morning you've given us. We're so grateful for your protection over us and bringing us here safely and uh, providing us this time to open your word and to study the scriptures and especially to study them on this uh, this crucial topic and uh, as we consider it together father uh, guide us and we pray that your holy Spirit himself will be our instructor today and we ask all these things in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ amen, amen. Does anyone not have the handout? Okay, so uh, that'll be our guide. That's sort of where we're uh, where we're tracking for today. And at the top, I put this um, was um, it's not scripture. It's a <laughs> although it's in a lot of ways it's very scriptural in its uh, in its spirit. Um, and I googled this to try to find because I, I thought you know that phrase is as old as the hills. Does anybody really know who coined it or who first said it? And apparently, Agnes Allen did. Um, uh, the trick is there are several Agnes Allens. I don't know which one said it. <laughs> uh, there's a prob- it's probably the British author, Agnes Allen, uh, but there was also a, a famous female athlete, uh, Uh, by the American athlete by the name of Agnes Allen. But anyway, when all else fails, read the instructions. I started making uh, model kits uh, as a kid, and one of the um, earliest uh, hands-on experiences I had with this phrase, uh, when all else fails, read the instructions, was putting together a model. Because I was building an airplane. I forget what, uh, what what the exact aircraft was. But I, you know, started taking apart the pieces, and I thought, "Oh, that's part of the fuselage, and this is the tail assembly." And I, I realized I could see just by looking at it what went where. And So I started putting it together, and I glued it up, and I set, you know, and I had all these other pieces,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and I started putting those together, and I thought, "Ah, oh, okay," and, and I realized I had this uh, this thing that it was it was actually the the, the jet engine. And, well, that was stupid. Uh, how do I get this into the,
1: <laughs> into the fuselage?
0: You well, know? the reason I, I didn't follow the instructions, and so I think that um, that was very formative in my life, because you know there are some of us who who really are fastidious about reading the instructions before we get into something, and I'm one of those people. And a lot of it goes back to that stupid model that I built or tried to build all those years ago. Um, well, on a much more serious basis, though, uh, far more consequential than building a, a plastic model kit you know people uh, day after day, year after year throughout the generations have entered into a relationship for which God gives instructions and they don't take into consideration the instructions that God has given them I'm talking about marriage of course Um, so I want to look at uh, some of the essentials two in particular about God's design for marriage um, and the first, um, these are both drawn, obviously, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, from the very words of Scripture. The first thing that marriage involves is leaving and cleaving. And it's, it's noteworthy that that statement, uh, it, that's the older language, but uh, you know, in our ESV Bible, for instance, uh, it'll say, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Uh, Cleaving, holding fast, it's the same thing. We're going to analyze those words here in just a second. But that statement, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, is found four times in the Bible, and notably once in the Old Testament, three in the New, and um, those three new ones, obviously, were were spoken and were uh, given as instructions, given as command by God, After the fall, when God said in Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, there was no sin in the world yet. The fall hadn't taken place. The world was still perfect. And uh, we hadn't yet messed it up with our sin. And God said that. And then he said it again through his son twice in the Gospels and then through the apostle in Ephesians. So let's uh, let's very uh, quickly but deliberately look at each of these, okay? Uh, and if uh, I'll call on some people to read, uh, not by name, but I'll open it up. And if, So if you'd like to read, maybe uh, you can be jumping ahead to the Matthew and the Mark and the Ephesians chapter, and some of you can have those at the ready just to expedite a little bit here. But um, uh, Genesis 2.24, this is in the creation account. This is in the first week of the universe, the sixth day. And... God saw that there wasn't a helper suitable for Adam. God saw that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And so he caused that deep sleep to fall on Adam. He took a rib out of his side and he closed up the flesh. And he took that rib and he used it to form a woman. Uh, speaks much about the, the dignity of the woman, doesn't it? That the woman is the only living creature, the only creature on earth with, a, with lungs that breathe and a heart that beats that wasn't formed out of the dirt. She's formed out of the man. Pretty interesting, but can't go down that rabbit hole too far. Um, Genesis two twenty four, after this pronouncement, uh, um, and, and then Adam's response to what God had made for him. Uh, he says, "Therefore, God says, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." Now, does anybody already have for us Matthew nineteen five? And if so, please just go ahead and read it for us.
2: And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh.
0: Thank you. And Mark 10, 7 and 8. It says... Thank you. And then um, it's repeated by Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 31.
3: It says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become
0: one. Thank you. Okay, so first of all, leave. Um, that word in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is the Hebrew word azab. Um, and to get a sort of a taste of what that word uh, means, or can mean in the Hebrew, turns me to Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, verse 16. Uh, God, these are very sobering words, because Moses is about to die, and before Moses passes into the Lord's presence, before his spirit actually comes and appears before God in heaven, um God is telling Moses while he's still in the flesh, this is what's going to happen after you're gone, Moses. And it's not a very happy tale. Uh, But uh, Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. That word forsake is the same word. So you... And it Obviously, cast in a very negative light in this in this context. But the point being, that's the Hebrew word azav to forsake. The people left; they turned aside from the Lord. So there's a sense in which the leaving father and mother is a, is a turning aside. And been, we're going to qualify that, of course, in a minute. But um, but that's the strength of the word. That's sort of the uh, the semantic range of that word. And then, of course, Psalm 22, verse one. You. Probably don't even need to turn to it because that's where Jesus, uh, that's where the psalmist uh, speaks and is prophetically foretelling the words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Azov. Okay. Um, Now, in the New Testament, of course, uh, man shall leave his father and mother. Uh, That Greek word there in the the New Testament is kataleipso. And we see it used in Luke five twenty-eight. So you can turn there, and it's uh, it's interesting and uh, telling, and, and 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 to some extent, to be expected that this Greek word has a very similar range of meaning as the Hebrew word that's used in um, Genesis two twenty-four. But in Luke five verse twenty-eight. Um, Jesus has called Levi, Matthew, to be his disciple. Uh, He said, follow me, at the end of verse 27. And verse 28 says, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. In other words, Matthew, at that day, at that moment, ceased to be a tax collector. And he started following Jesus. And he never went back to being a tax collector. From that point on, he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what... uh, Katalipso means also Second 2 Peter two fifteen. Uh, he's talking about submission to authority here, and uh, oh, I'm sorry, First Peter, Second Peter two fifteen. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. So again, using it in a negative sense there, but uh, nevertheless, it's, it's you know, portraying is the turning away completely from something. Um, so in other words, both the Hebrew word azab and the Greek word katalaipso signify a, a, a clean break a new direction, in a sense, we might say, an alteration, as it, as it applies to the marriage relationship, an alteration to former relationships and roles. Uh, now, we, here, and here's the qualification, especially when it comes to leaving father and mother. Right? Um, it doesn't mean, and when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we know it can't possibly mean that uh, and, you, know, you completely abandon your parents, Right. Uh, Turns me to Mark seven. It's not a forsaking of parents, in the, in the sense of you never caring for them again, breaking contact, or anything like that. Um, Mark seven, starting in verse nine. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees here uh, for for basically setting up their own list of rules, and in doing so, uh, nullifying. God's commandments, and so he says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. So Jesus is obviously teaching and and declaring that uh, you don't just stop honoring your parents. The fifth commandment remains in effect uh, even after a husband or a wife has left father and mother in in that sense in which we leave them in in marriage. Any questions so far? All right, so that's leave. Let's discuss briefly in the same uh, manner the word cleave or be joined to the Hebrew in, Deuter- uh, in Genesis 2 is dabach it can mean cling it can mean keep close to uh, and to see some other places where the same word is used in the Old Testament scriptures turn to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10 and verse 20 and if someone um, would be looking up and getting, getting ready to read Ruth one fourteen for us that would be helpful but Deuteronomy 10.20 uh, you, shall love, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So that holding fast, the sense in which we're to cling to God because he's our God, and because of his love for us, uh, that's the sense in which a man is to hold fast to his wife, a wife is to hold fast to her husband. A beautiful picture of that is in Ruth 1, verse 14. Would someone read that, please? And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Okay, so, and if you go on another verse or two, you see it, when it says Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, it's like she, she, she gave her that affectionate greeting, and then she turned and she went back home. She returned to her people. And that's what it says in verse 15. But what does it say Ruth did? She clung. Clung to her. And we know that Ruth then... She went all the way back to Israel with Naomi. And she lived with Naomi and she cared for Naomi. Uh, that's Dabak, to keep close to, to cleave. And then uh, the Greek word Kalaomai, uh, you got uh, Luke 10, verse 11. Um so when Jesus is sending out his disciples to preach in the cities, he's sending them out two by two, and he's giving them instructions about you know, what to do. And, and he says, uh, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, and here's verse 11, even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. So it's like they want to get off this dust from this town as a testimony against the town because they had rejected the message of Christ. And that's that word, kalaomai, which means to cling. Uh Romans twelve, nine.
4: He says, uh, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good.
0: Thank you. So you got God in his word painting a picture. You know, here we've got what is evil. And what's evil we are to abhor. It's we're it's we're to view it as detestable. Um Kind of like that stuff that just finally got thrown away that's been in the refrigerator for, for, I don't know how many months. You know, it's growing stuff on top. It's like, I mean, it's one thing when when somebody serves up something for dinner that you don't like. You know, I don't really care for that. But you know, when you see that in the refrigerator, that's like, and that's the way we're to view sin, and that's where we're to view evil. Abhor what is evil. But what are we to do with what's good? Cling to it, and that's what a man is supposed to do to his wife. He's supposed to hold fast to her. Uh, The word um, can mean to glue together, uh, literally, um, which is a very interesting uh, word picture because marriage is kind of like taking two sheets of construction paper. When was the last time you worked with kids on a a craft or something and you glued things together? If you take two equal-sized pieces of construction paper and you glue them together, let the glue dry, and then try to take them apart, Pretty messy. Husband and wife are supposed to cling to each other. That's what they're made to do, and that's what marriage does for them. All right? So both aspects, it's worth noting, I think, uh, leave and cleave, even though in Scripture each time it's addressed specifically uh, to the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. The command is applicable both to the man and the woman, to the husband and to the wife. And uh, so, just real quick before we go on to the second point, here are some practical implications specifically of leaving and cleaving. First of all, the marriage relationship becomes primary. Once a man or woman are united in marriage, that is the primary relationship in their lives. They still relate to and love and honor their parents. They still have relationship with brothers and sisters, uh, and so it's not that those relationships go away or are to be discarded, but the marriage relationship is primary takes precedence over friends. You know, and when I've tried to work through marital problems with people in the past, a lot of times it's that, uh, you know, the guy wants to hang out with his buds so much that he's not spending any time with his wife, or vice versa, you know. The wife wants her girl time, and and she's neglecting her husband. Uh, Marriage relationship is primary. Secondly, the marriage relationship is permanent. And we'll come back to this, but, uh, Mark 10, 7-9, we, we've read part of that already. In fact, um, I think it was Elizabeth who read that one, right? And the the, the passage that I referenced earlier was 7-8. through 8. She went on ahead and read verse 9. I'm glad she did because that's where it says, therefore what God has brought together, let not man separate. Okay? It's to be a permanent relationship. Um, we're going to go back and look at this verse from Malachi again as we wrap up in a little bit here, but turn turns me to Malachi. Malachi is easy to find. Turn to Matthew and then go to the book right before it. Final book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14. God is rebuking his people. Uh, So let me back up to verse 13. Again, this is the prophet speaking on behalf of God, rebuking the children of Israel, and he says, "This second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? The answer, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. We're going to come back to that idea of marriage as a covenant. But the point is, this is a permanent relationship um, Proverbs 2.17 is similar because it's uh, um, it's actually speaking in a negative sense against someone who's unfaithful it's talking about the forbidden woman by this point in Proverbs chapter 2, uh, you'll be delivered from her, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God so marriage, you know, when you, if, you, if you've heard people speak of marriage as a covenant And you've wondered why, where does it say that? Those verses in particular uh, represent for us the fact that this, this relationship into which we enter, giving and exchanging vows, is a covenant in God's eyes. So it's to be permanent. Questions or comments about leaving and cleaving?
2: So is that like when they become one, that's just like basically you tear them apart, it destroys
3: both?
1: In
0: many respects it does, yeah. It does It does damage.
2: So that's supposed to mean to the end of like when you die. In the aspect then because in heaven Jesus says
0: we're Right, that's correct, really yeah. Experience. So the marriage relationship is confined to this present age, yeah. Good question. Anything else before we go ahead?
3: Steve, I just love what you said about an enduring bond. You know, when you look at the vows, too, it's, it's, it's just for every aspect of life and the good times, the bad times. When you have lots of money, when you have no money, you know, in sickness and in health, it's, it's just for everything. And I think, you know, that goes along with that permanent bond. And I, I think we as a culture, which it's obviously not um, when you look at the ramifications, but if I'm not happy, or if, you know, things will be fine as long as things are fine, but, you know, I can get out of this. But that's not what God tells us. That's right. It's enduring,
0: it's common. Yeah, and sadly, like you said, our culture has made it easy to divorce, Uh, and, um, and that's a tragedy. And we're gonna keep coming back to those, or better or worse, and sickness and health, that you're poor and all that, because those are things, those are things we promise to do, right?
2: What does it mean that what God is doing together let man not suffer? Is that meaning that God is that technically saying that God created your spouse just for you, and what He's doing you two together, or is He talking in a whole? You
0: know, about? I think both. I mean, providentially. Uh, Many of you, most of you maybe, dated other people before you met your spouse. I can't really say the same thing of our son exactly, because you know, he he's married to his childhood friend and sweetheart, and it's really sweet. Um, but most of us, you know, we had various relationships as we went through even high school, you know, dating and going steady and all that stuff, and then meet people in college and go out a while, and then finally you, know, you meet that person that you realize, hey, I want to marry this person, and then, and then you do. But all of that was ordered by God's providence. So it's not like somehow God intended me to marry that girl I was going out with in high school. No, no, no. Um, uh, God's providence orders all of it, and He's providentially put husband and wife together. I think that's going to be that's going to become a real topic because He does it deliberately. I think He does it with reasons that are beyond our ability to comprehend. But um, the uh, now I've lost track of what your question was. But basically, the, what God oh yeah what God has joined together. Um, number one, it's in terms of his providence. He brings people together. Number two, it's in terms of the fact that we take those vows before him. And he blesses and he sanctions that marriage. And so a man and woman are united in marriage uh, under and by the authority of God. So he is, it's like something he's done, something he's created. And then when we uh, pull marriages apart, we're separating what God has joined together. And did you have a hand up?
1: Well, so it's, and I realize that um, believers can make mistakes too. But to me, it's sort of like... And so, if you're not a believer, you make your choice and all your choices. And if you are, then God makes the choice for you if you seek his advice. It's really a a matter of trying to do everything yourself. I think a not entering into it. The contract with the full understanding of what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless of whether you're a believer or not a believer, once you're married, that's the person you were supposed to marry. You're married. Well, it's like, okay. no, you can't just go, well, I picked the wrong person, God must have met me, and somebody else. But they don't have an idea of covenant. And I no. think That's the problem. Right. That right. is amazing.
0: Yeah, the fact that somebody chooses poorly doesn't nullify their vows. Right. Uh, you yeah, know, so, did you have another?
2: So, when it talks in Scripture about not dating or, like, get, being married to someone who is an unbeliever, and for people who are looking for stuff, because it also says that if you're married to a unbeliever, your witness can win them over to Christ. Exactly, yeah. So, so, just giving advice to, like, what you're looking for, and then if you've already been then Right,
0: right. Yeah, and so when it talks about um, you know wives honoring their husbands, even if they're unbelievers, uh, the scenario that's probably principally in view there is a woman who's who's married and and then comes to faith in Christ. Um, and and she's married to this unbeliever. She knows she's not supposed to be unequally yoked to an unbeliever, but she happens to be married to this guy already. And so, uh, scripture teaches that uh, you know. You, Corinthians goes into this in great length. You know, if the if the uh, unbelieving spouse is content to dwell with the believing spouse, then go right on. That's uh, that's that's the um, those are the marching orders. Yes.
3: Can I also say that um, I often think too that this is the John is the gift that God gave me and sometimes it's like, take it back.
1: <laughs> you
3: know, I mean, but, no, I, you know, I mean, okay. And, and do you say that to a holy, trying God? No, you
0: don't. This
3: is a gift, he's the gift that you gave me. Right. It's just like when we grumble and complain. Yeah. It's, it's kind of no different. It's When we're complaining, we're saying, well, thank you for this gift, but I don't want it. Take it back. Um, John is he is here to sanctify me, and I'm.
0: Yeah, something I hope to, uh, to kind of try to emphasize as we go along is this idea of uh, of uh, the portion. You see that word in Scripture a lot. God gives each of us a portion. You know, we talk about our portion in life, and in Ecclesiastes it talks about you know uh, eating and drinking and enjoying life with your spouse because that's God's portion. And so the house you live in, for now anyway, that's God's portion for you. The car you drive, the job you have, uh, your situation, that's all part of the, where the lines have fallen to you in God's providence. And the spouse is included in that. And I think if we think of our spouses as God's portion for us, uh, it will uh, beneficially affect our, our own approach to marriage. Let's move on. We've got leaving and cleaving, and we've got the two becoming one. Now, I mentioned that leaving and cleaving, that's found four times in Scripture. The two becoming one flesh, that's found five times in Scripture. So it's included in all of those other passages that we read already, but it's mentioned a, an additional time in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So let's turn there together. This idea of two becoming one, becoming one flesh. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Um, uh, let me back up to uh, verse, well, it is 15, we'll probably do, I guess. Uh, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now, again, He's, he's taking this scriptural principle and he's applying it in a, in a negative situation, but he, he winds up with that citation uh, from scripture, from uh, Genesis uh, chapter 2, the two will become one flesh. Um, so, at its most basic level, not a, this is not the only sense in which uh, the, the, the expression or the concept is, is meaningful. In fact, it's... Uh, Far from it. But at the most basic level, that obviously, especially in light of what we just read, uh, refers to the conjugal union of man and woman. Okay, so you get that from 1 Corinthians 16. I mean, to the point that he's saying if, if a man is, is joined to a prostitute, there's a sense in which he becomes one flesh with her. But that's but the idea of two becoming one goes beyond that. Um, and so let's specify before we go on, uh, again, re- Listen to it again. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Um, So let's be reminded of this important uh, scriptural truth. That within the bonds of marriage, sexual relations are holy. They're good. They're blessed by God. He's pleased by our physical relationships within marriage. Um, that, is, that is what Scripture teaches uh, very clearly and unequivocally. The marriage bed it says in Hebrews is undefiled, and let it be held in honor. Uh, but outside of marriage, sexual relations are sinful they're degrading. We lose sight of that though because you know Hollywood portrays it as beautiful. You know two people just they 're attracted to each other and they, they jump in bed together and that's great that's wonderful they're in love isn't that great that's not love. And it's not great. It's degrading. They don't realize it. And culture doesn't realize it. But it's degrading for that kind of behavior to be taking place. And it's dishonoring to God. And going back to that one flesh idea, and going back to the idea of of, um, construction paper pieces being glued together, um, when you have people who have had uh, multiple sex partners there's a sense, in which, and it's not that the, the, they're beyond the reach of the gospel, it's not that Christ can't repair and heal, but there's a sense in which they've been glued and torn apart from countless other people. Mm-hmm. And so spiritually, their souls are in shreds. Mm-hmm. And that's what that kind of behavior does to people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, but we deny that, we suppress that truth.
1: You know, see, that's why I just really worry about teenagers in this society. You know the idea that they have sex, whatever they, a lot of them, whatever they feel like it. And I always think about what that does to them. Ultimately, just, I think the tearing apart and leaving a bit of yourself with
0: everyone. And they're going to reap. They're going to reap the fruit of that for the rest of their lives. A- apart from the gospel, apart from again Christ's ability to heal, He can heal. He can redeem. So I don't mean to. I don't want to ever lose sight of that. But, um, but you know it does something to people's souls that they just don't take into account. All they're doing is they're pursuing the, that, uh, that fleshly urge. Is
2: that why it says sexual sins are sins committed against the body instead of... It's a different
0: sin. I think that's one reason why it says that, yeah. Uh, sin against one's own flesh. All other, other sins are outside the body, right? Yeah, yeah, good. Um, so, that being said... One flesh entails much more than just um, physical relationship. Uh, it involves basically a sharing of everything. Sharing your uh, your possessions, sharing your wealth, sharing your abilities, your problems. Everything, good and bad, that life brings, husband and wife share because they're one flesh. They're no longer two, they're one. And so, uh, you know, the good things and the bad things, the difficulties... Uh, As well as the blessings and the joys. You share them. Um, And as has already been mentioned by at least one of you already today, you think about the standard vows in a wedding ceremony, the kind of the classic traditional vows. Uh, You promise, you take this person, um, and you promise to live with them in the estate of matrimony uh, for better or worse. Although, a lot of times when people say those words, uh, what they 're thinking is you know they 're forgetting about the worse, you know or they 're just figuring it won't it won 't come you know? sickness and health you know it praise God that even among unbelievers, a lot of times when one of the spouses becomes uh, uh, critically ill, the other will will really come alongside and care for them. sometimes that happens, but tragically. Uh, Amongst non-Christians and professing Christians, you know, somebody gets a diagnosis of cancer, and the other spouse is out the door. Because when they promised to live with them in sickness and in health, what they meant was health, and with sickness, well, forget that. Um, and on and on, you can go down the list uh, in, in plenty and in want. Whatever the case, um, you're one flesh. So if you're experiencing sickness, you experience it together. If you're experiencing want, you experience it together. If you're going through worse rather than better, you go through it together. Husband and wife are a team. Uh, They do everything for the sake of the other, or at very least, not to the detriment of the other. I like watching uh, beach volleyball. You know, the cool thing about beach volleyball is usually two-person teams. It reminds me a lot of a marriage, you know, husband, or playing tennis, playing doubles in tennis or something, or pickleball, uh, you know. Husband and wife are like that, and sometimes in marriage, it's like they're playing against each other instead of for each other. But We need to think of each other as teammates and, and treat each other and talk to each other like teammates. Um, and be as concerned about the other's needs as one's own. That is kind of the, the essence of what loving your neighbor as yourself is. You know, be at least as concerned about the other person's needs as one's own needs. Um, let me run through a few practical implications, and then I'll try to leave uh, some time at the end for, for discussion and questions and, and whatnot. But um, again, we already looked at Malachi 2.14. Uh, marriage is a covenantal relationship We've t- discussed the fact that in in marriage, people take vows. They make promises. We were just talking about that, and the obligation to those promises is binding. Promises, your words mean things, and promises are are what they are. Um, I could think of a lot of different examples of, uh, well, like okay. I entered the U.S. Army, technically, in December of twenty. In December of two thousand and uh, no, no, I'm sorry. It was ninety. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>
1: Thinking i was younger than I am. I,
0: I, I raised my right hand and I took the oath of enlistment in a in a entrance and processing station in December of nineteen ninety-two. Um. But the thing is, after that, I went home. And I carried on with life as usual for another six months or so. Before then, I went back to that station and reported for active duty. And I took the oath again when I reported that in June of 1993. Of uh, um, um, and then I was told later that, um, and I can't remember who told me this, and I'm actually not even sure it's true. But somebody said, you know, that first vow wasn't really binding. And I thought, well, oh, that's weird. What they're saying is, you know, you could have walked away and it would have been no, no skin off your back. Uh, but even if that was so, in my heart, I made a promise already. I took a vow. I took an oath. right? And in, in marriage, we take oaths. And those promises are binding. So when Hillary and I got married... After, you know, we got to kiss and then proceed out, well, the pastor called us back in. And he showed us a gift he had for us, and it was in a nice little folio, and it was a copy of our vows. And he said, uh, he, he went on to explain. He said, uh, I can still remember it because we've watched the video a few times, but he said, you know, not long after I started pastoring, I began to do marriage counseling. And he said... Um, uh, what he would do is he would have couples come in and bring with them, when they were coming for marriage counseling, a copy of their wedding vows. And then he'd read through them with them. He said, you promised these things. Do you remember that? Do you remember when you said those words? Yeah. And, and you promised better or worse, sickness and health, etc, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes people make up their own vows and they're kind of wacky and they're kind of, they've got a lot of loopholes and, and escape clauses even in, in wedding vows. But that should not be so. Um, and and so he would bring people face to face once again with their vows and what they promised to do Uh, so marriage is a covenantal relationship and therefore it's a permanent arrangement what God has joined together let not man separate including the man in the marriage and including the woman in the marriage and I think one of the uh, very practical implications then is that marriage is not founded upon feelings it's not founded upon emotion. Five-minute warning. Um, And that really gets at the nature of what love is, the definition of love. Uh, Again, talking about culture, talking about Hollywood, talking about novels and movies and TV and songs on the radio, they portray a a concept of love that is foreign to Scripture. You know, I enjoy listening to love songs. They're great. You know, they put a smile on your face sometimes fun, but, but they lie about what love is. Uh, it's not an emotion and what gets a lot of people in trouble a lot of the time is love is not synonymous with romance. Romance is great and anytime you can generate it in the proper you know, and, and, and wholesome context, which would be marriage, uh, you know, it's great. But, uh, but that's not love. It's a different thing. Love is a commitment. Pure and simple. It has nothing to do with how you feel. Um, And love is God's commandment. We hear in a lot of contexts and people with lots of different agendas making the statement, you can't legislate love. Well, guess what? God legislates love. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment of all? The greatest commandment of all is love God. Might do feel like it? Well, it doesn't matter. You are commanded to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy 6.5. That's what Jesus was quoting. And Jesus gives the guy who was asking him the question a bonus answer. He says, the second is like unto it. It's love your neighbor as yourself. And there again, he was quoting scripture, Leviticus 19.18. Nine, yeah, 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God is saying, take this seriously. I really mean this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then, just an expansion, really, of these two great commandments. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. It's a command. So when you wake up in the morning and you don't feel all kinds of gushy feelings for your wife, you still love her. You must. And then, um, interestingly, Titus two four, which I read just this morning, uh, Paul is directing Titus, um, and he says, "Train the young women to love their husbands." Why well, do we need training? on how to love, because we get it wrong. How to love their husbands and their children. I mean, of all things that you'd think would come naturally, it would be a parent's, a mom's love for the child. But they even need instruction in that. Um, so that's all I've got for today. Uh, any closing remarks or questions?
4: Uh, you know, you underline there towards the bottom, love is a commitment, and, and, I'm not, and I completely agree with that, but it, you also see a lot of people describe... Uh, biblical love uh, with the word sacrifice in place of where you put commitment, which is I think the same, same thing two different ways. Yeah. You know we, we talk to our kids about that all the time, which is someday when God provides you a man or a woman that you, you know, think you're going to love, you need to be ready to sacrifice things you would want to do for them that's love. I mean if there's no sacrifice, then there's no love. I mean if I, if I sacrifice everything I would want to do in life you know to commit myself to Heather so that she can then do all the things she was going to do anyway, you know, in this illustration Then, you know, I'm, I'm sacrificing and loving her, but if she doesn't have to give anything up, if, if the other person of the, of the marriage doesn't lay down anything that is an idol in their own heart, you know, something they would want to do, then where's the love if you don't sacrifice anything? And that's I think so missing in, again, the cultural narrative today, and it has been for centuries as well, which is, you know, just get a spouse who betters you, or who can you know, reinforce what you already want to do, or make you a better person of yourself, a better version of yourself. But it's not thought of in terms of, well, who do you want to sacrifice for? Who do you want to lay down? You know, your joys and your things in life to make that person joyful, and you know, to help them be a better person. It's uh, it's just one of the many, many ways that I think Satan uses the cultural narrative to attack. You know what God intended for people, which is uh, just make marriage about you, don't make it about the person you're going to. Leave to, you know, as you talked about in your very first session. So, and I, you know, as we, this is not a class about parenting, but with the teenagers that we're raising right now, I spend as much time thinking about that nowadays. Which is, how am I, what am I doing or not doing to prepare Ethan to grow up, you know, and not only be responsible for himself, but you know, some mother or father are going to give to him their daughter at some point, and you know, what am I doing to, to prepare him to assume that responsibility? And lead her for the rest of their lives, you know. And, and same thing with Elise, you know. How, how do I prepare her to be ready to submit and love and sacrifice, you know, uh, to, to whoever God's going to give her someday? It's it, it, you know, the father and mother part of the very beginning it implies that there's a mother and a father training them, as you said at the end, preparing them yeah. to how to assume their roles as a as a husband or as a wife.
1: So. You well, know, the Bible has the love. Of-
0: I'm very reluctant, well no I'm not actually, I should be, to uh, to mention songs when I'm teaching or preaching, because I know if I mention the name of a song, for some people it's gonna get in their head and then be distracted and they're gonna have that song running through their mind, but you know, uh, well, actually we're out of time, so I'm not gonna do it after all. <laughs> <laughs> we'll anyway. Next time, let me just give you a quick uh, quick rundown. We gonna, we're gonna talk uh, in future units, we're gonna talk about gender roles, uh, communication, and that's one I think might take more than one week, uh, uh, conflict resolution, finances, uh, and on and on. Those are, those are some of the highlights we're going to try to hit as we go through this. Again, it may be nine weeks, it may be 13, who knows, but I'm glad you're here and uh, hope you profit from this. And let's ask the Lord to, to bless our worship service now. Father, thank you for the time we've had together. Thank you for your scripture. Uh, thank you to give us instructions, Lord. Help us to follow your instructions. Bless our marriages, we pray, and those among us who aren't married but want to be Lord we pray that you in your, in your mercy and your generosity and uh, love for them raise up spouses for them and Lord now we pray that uh, as we take a few moments before we go into the other room Lord uh, prepare us for worship and help us Lord uh, just as uh, we need to be commanded and instructed to love one another and to love our spouses we're commanded to love you pray, Lord, that you stir us up now, that we can express our love for you in worship in this coming hour, and you'll make us receptive to the ministry of the word. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.